0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Chairman of the New South Wales Bookmaker Cooperative, David Dwyer. Dave, thanks very much for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Today I'm joined by Chairman of the New South Wales Bookmaker Cooperative, David Dwyer. Dave, thanks very much for coming on.
1: Thank you very much for having me,
0: Jake. So Dave, obviously you've been in the industry a while, so tell us, take us back to how you got involved. Many people have a a very similar story actually to myself and others where they had a, a father, an uncle, a brother or someone lead them towards the track or lead them towards betting and gambling did you follow a similar path in your earlier days?
1: Yeah, Jake, I grew up on a dairy farm in northern New South Wales near a little town called Kyogle and um, I had an uncle who lived on the property next door who was a greyhound trainer and he he didn't have any children at that stage and I always uh, found it was an interesting time to spend time with him leading his greyhounds and and going to watch his greyhounds race, and uh, my person, my mum and dad really had little interest other than watching their brothers' d- d- greyhounds run. And I suppose I went to greyhound meetings for the, as, a, as a kid up to 14 or 15, and then I had an uncle who was uh, on, my mum's, on, on my dad's sister, who was a local interstate bookmaker who fielded her on away meetings. And when I was in year 11 and 12 at school, he offered me a job to come and clerk for him in the old pencilling days um and so I went and did that in my you know in the last two years of high school and then I came to Sydney in the early 1980s to become a become a school teacher and when I was doing teacher training one of the guys he gave me an introduction to work for one of the Leviathan bookies Bruce McHugh as a one of his many many staff and I had a a job there, um, taking bets and, and, and recording them in the ledger in those early days. And that was, uh, probably, you know, opened my eyes to come to Sydney and you'd go to Wetworth Park Greyhounds on a Saturday night and there'd be 55 bookmakers working on the locals and God knows how many at the horse meetings. Obviously there were two or three betting rings at, at Rose Hill and Randwick in those days. So it was a sea of people, a sea of money. So it was, uh, for a young guy from the country, it was certainly an eye-opener.
0: Do you remember why you said yes to those clerk jobs in maybe year 10, year 11? Because, you know, you can do many things to earn a, a quid on the side if it's about money, and oftentimes it's not. Do you recall why you wanted to do that at those earlier stages?
1: I think because my uncle was, uh, you know, he was a had been doing it for a long time, and I and I had no understanding at all what was involved. And I went and observed, and it seemed like the the country bookies betting with a high margin on interstate races. He seemed to win most of the time, and uh, that obviously attracted my attention as to you know where well, this this looks like a good business that at some point you'd like to get into.
0: Did you go out and watch races? Were you fixated on the prices? Were you talking to other clerks or other bookies, or what? How, how did you go about things? Or were you just learning by osmosis and keeping to yourself?
1: By yeah, learning by watching and observing, and you know, and, and I suppose looking at results at that time, I probably had no grasp of percentages or how to make a book, or and I think probably with no disrespect to my uncle Matt, it, you know, it, it was basically a price. It was an all the play the man type situation where you put up the call and the punters charged in to 125 percent, and at the end of the day, you know, you weren't playing anyone smart. So at the end of the day, you know, he generally finished up making a nice little living out of it over a year. And I suppose, uh, you know, because he wasn't working on local events, where you have to make lots of decisions. I think the interstate was more a gambling type role and he was pretty good at that. But he was pretty good at playing the man and taking bigger bets off people who were most likely to lose and, you know, was quite successful at it. So I suppose... You know, I only started to learn a little bit more about the game when I got to work for people who were working on the local events. You know, where you actually had to make a book and you were making decisions, and if you made bad decisions, you finished up losing more often than not.
0: Tell me about the teaching was that something that you value now, knowing what you know obviously years later, or do you think you would have been better suited maybe if you had the opportunity to go straight into being a bookie?
1: Oh, I think in my personal like Jake um, you know teaching the teaching was great I've built um, lots of fantastic relationships with teachers and with students that I've had I've you know I taught my whole career in the Parramatta area and and you know I live in the Parramatta area now and and I suppose the only frightening part is that you know I run into my students who are now in their late 40s who I taught at school and, you know, I really cherished those times. They were wonderful times and, you know, you can do uh, so much in the development of young people, I think, by just giving them a steer in the right direction occasionally and and obviously one of my other passions was rugby league coaching um, and that gave me an opportunity to sort of further that at that stage. I was never a fantastic player but I thought I was a reasonable coach.
0: What year did you get your first licence in your name or yourself? And, And tell me about that time of your life. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I would have been clerking for a bookmaker at uh, Gosford Greyhounds in in the in 1993, and and I observed, you know, he was a bookmaker that liked to have lots of bets himself, and I think there was more betting than bookmaking going on. Uh, and he said to me, "This is no good. I'm going to give it away. I can't win here. Um, would you, you know, if you get a license, I'm happy to hand it to you." And so I took up bookmaking at Gosford on the local events, and. Um, For the next 14 years, I was the only bookmaker there and, um, you know, it was a good little business. You know, we bet on Gosford on Tuesday nights and we also bet on Lismore and Warrigal and wherever else is on in Victoria. And uh, we probably learned occasionally, we run into some hard punters, but generally, you know, we were able to make reasonably good books on a small scale, which was a great learning curve for me. And then I also went to Port Macquarie and Taree and Kempsey and that little group of meetings which were on a Saturday while I was still school teaching and I used to go and book make on the Saturdays there on the five or six event card and, you know, try and eke out a living and we were never, you know, again, it was a great learning curve. I didn't lose too much when I made some silly mistakes but, I, you know, it was a great great opportunity for me to learn the, how, how, how getting value in your book works. And, uh, you know, and, and that, that was the important lessons I learned in, in both of those positions.
0: So tell us about that. What made a good book? What, what made a good bookie, whether it was what you were doing or what you might've observed and and what you've observed since? I think
1: in those situations, it was about knowing the faces in front of you. I think, I think it's about knowing those that know, know more than, you know, and those that don't know more than, you know, and. And and obviously the idea of the exercise is to lay the horses as short as you can. So I suppose when I first started out, I was very impatient and you'd want to be top odds all the time. You know, you want to get every bet on the racetrack and then eventually you work out that, you know, there is a time to be top odds and there's a time not to be top odds. And I suppose I learned off a guy when I was clerking who was his number one rule was never to go a price on his own. Um, He said, I don't want to force them to back the winner with me. Uh, and you know, and those sorts of little strategies. And I know another bookmaker who's you know taught me that if you lay horses at SP over a period of time, you'll make a lot of money. If you lay horses at, you know, way over SP, you'll go broke. So that's sort of the the fine line in bookmaking on local events.
0: You must have heard a million different sayings like that one. How long does it take for some of them to sink in? Because I'm guessing when someone comes up and says that to you, that if you if you lay them at SP over time, you'll be fine and you'll, you'll have a really good business. How do those things work, at least throughout the years? Because, like I said, there's probably hundreds of those things you hear from grifters and smart people and everyone else in between.
1: Yeah, I think, Jake, over a period of time, you have to make your your, your own style. I mean, I, I'm not a, a, a real form student. I mean, I'm not in a position where I can say that 100% this is what the market should be, and I'll lay all those that are under the price, and I'll back all those that are over the price. Um my my experience of bookmakers has been that most people who are what we call it in the industry go the double whammy, which is you know lay one and back one. Most of those finished out of the game. Um, you know, the long run, the run eventually caught up with them. I suppose the only person who you know my experience of observing would be someone like Robbie Waterhouse, who's a very clever form student and basically does that through his bookmaking as well. And you know, Robbie's been a survivor. He's been in the game a long time and. He's one of the few bookmakers that I've seen who, you know, are what we'd call opinion bookmakers, where they don't lay horses and they will, you know, gap other horses uh, based on their their opinion. And obviously, if you're going to do that, you need to have really good form. And unfortunately for me, I'm not in a position where I where my markets are that good that I could say I'm going to beat the market uh, over a long period of time.
0: Tell me about booking greyhounds because. It's not something you hear spoken about too much, is it? Similar to trots and and thoroughbreds and even sports, or is it, it its own unique beast in and of itself?
1: Well, I suppose there were you know there were two forms of greyhound racing. The hardest form of bookmaking ever I've ever done was straight track bookmaking, um, which is uh, you know I think in, in Australia in the last period of time it's become popular again for tracks like Hillsville and Capalabar now are on Sky Channel and um, obviously. In that form of bookmaking, uh, you know, the, the, like they, they can settle on one dog, which is settled by the side of the track it likes, and you know, I, you know plenty of occasions you start laying a dog at, you know, at uh, two to one against or three dollars, and they finish up taking dollar thirty, and they win by half the straight. So there are, you know, I think that was the hardest. Circle racing, greyhound racing, which is what we mostly see around bends. Obviously, interference played a factor, and most of it were tight little tracks. And from the bookmaking point of view, the $1. thirty chance or the $1. fifty chance could always – there was always a chance of getting beaten if there was a bit of interference. The greyhounds, yeah, greyhounds was, was kind to me. Greyhound bookmaking, I think probably the margins were a little bit higher, um, but you probably needed to you know, know your form and have someone that could do the trials for you because the trials are obviously very important for dogs that are having their first start. Or to know you know, you eventually worked out which stables were big punters and what their average bet size was, and that sort of told you without knowing too much whether the dogs were fancied or not, and you sort of went accordingly.
0: What made you branch out beyond greyhound racing and greyhound bookmaking?
1: Ah, uh, well, I suppose, you know, I I could see the greyhound bookmaking was, you know, where that put stage, the on-track crowds had already started to decline and it got to a level where the hold you know, wasn't big enough. Um, I also did some trot bookmaking at Penrith in Western Sydney, uh, but that was more fielding on, you know, it was on a Thursday night and we used to field on, you know, all, all the greyhounds around Australia and and also on the trot racing and, uh, you know, I cut my teeth there. And again, trotting was a, was a whole different ball game. You, you know, you needed to know your form and I wasn't very good at that. Uh, but I had to employ someone that was and, you know, we, made a, 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 we had 10 good years at the trots. But I could see that in the case of both the trots and the, and the greyhounds that the face-to-face crowds were starting to diminish in the 1990s. And obviously I thought, well, if I'm ever going to have a go at being an on-track bookie at the horses, it's not really, I, in my opinion, it's a young man's game, the risk-taking. And, and and I thought, well, if I'm ever going to have a crack at it, you know, I don't want to die without saying, well, you didn't give it a try. So I thought, well, I'm going to have a crack at it. I'll, I'll try and get into the ATC meetings and see if I can make a go of it.
0: So before we get into your style, I want to just talk about a few other people that might have impacted your time. You mentioned someone before. Bruce McHugh and I believe it or not I listened to a John Tapp episode um, where he talked about a few things in his career so just tell me from your point of view what he meant to bookmaking and some of the things that you learned and then some of the things that people around him were able to pick up along the way
1: well Bruce Bruce was a massive bookmaker in in a time I suppose where the didn't have much in their favor and I'm not being disrespectful to Bruce he was very you know he had a heart. He played Kerry Packer at different at the latter part of his career, and you know, anywhere you're risking millions. And I'm talking about in the 1980s through to the 1990s. You know, in today's terms, it'd be taking bets to win six, eight, ten million.
0: Yeah.
1: Yep. Uh, you know, on a, on a single horse race. So Bruce Bruce was a Bruce was very good at playing the person, and I suppose well ahead of you know what the corporate profiling does now. He was doing back in the 1980s and the general cash punters was put up the prices and let him on. Um, and, you know, he was fearless and he, he knew that the numbers were in his favour and and provided he limited the professionals to a reasonable-sized bet, and he, he would finish up on top. And when it came to Kerry Packer, well, you know, I don't know the exact nature of the business. All, all I know is that millions were involved in each bet and that at some point, he you know, he had a good result off that. And chose to retire and I suppose, you know, good luck to Bruce. I mean, I still have met him at a few functions. He's a lovely man and obviously got into horse breeding and other things, um, you know, but to stand up on that on your stand and be having basically you've half your wealth or going around on a horse race is grand scale gambling and, you know, he must have had, you know, the, the heart of steel to do it.
0: Absolutely, and, and did you want to emulate that type of behaviour or that type of approach, or was that something I'm uh, probably you...
1: not as big a risk, you know. I've yeah. never been a real big risk taker. I mean, as in, you know, I take, I'll take, i take a calculated risk, but I sort of want it to be proportional to what the gain is. Um, you know, I think in those cases, probably, you know, with Bruce had a chance that Bruce would go out of business, you know, had Kerry Packer headed three or four up, then, uh, you know... Yeah. You know, but Bruce thought the odds are in his favour, and he was willing to put, you know, his livelihood on the line. Um, it's not really my style. You know, I'm happy to risk a percentage of my bank, but I wouldn't be wouldn't be looking to risk half of it on one hit.
0: So, getting towards the 2000s now, tell me about your bookmaking philosophy, and and how do you think that was shaped, or where did it come from, or was it just a natural evolution? You didn't really think about it too much.
1: Um. No, I don't think my my style evolved as opportunities came. I, I think that that would be true. I, used to, I was an outer ring bookmaker in Sydney, um, plugging along, making little books to you know probably holding twenty thousand a meeting, maybe you know holding your three four thousand a race. And then um, I had an opportunity when Tom Waterhouse approached me when he was bookmaking in Melbourne and saying, "Will you be you know will you take my bets in Sydney?" Um, and you know, do what you want to do with them, but I need you to bet me to win twenty thousand uh on every bet, and you know um I thought well here's my chance i mean i I can take Tom's bets uh they were all top luck, which was calculated from the track, and I'll give it a game and so obviously there was a lot of betting back, a lot of running around I mean I didn't stand all the bets and but I used that to create my books, and I tried to make books around that and And my hold obviously trebled or quadrupled, uh, you know, and I had some obviously great positions and some really bad ones. But in the end, it made me bet bigger. And, um, you know, and I had some luck over that period of time. And so obviously then moved to becoming a rails bookmaker and taking on some bigger clients.
0: So tell me about that period when someone like Tom comes along and says, do you want to, you know, take my bets essentially or take these bets uh, through Sydney and, they'll be top flock what goes through your mind in terms of analyzing whether that's a good idea or not because i'm guessing the operational side of it once you said yes was going to be you know running around like crazy trying to navigate what the top is going to be you know those last 15 minutes before a race i'm sure you had some some nervous moments and also some and pretty strong positions as well
1: yeah i, I mean obviously yes obviously you, you know you're you were in a position where the you know, you, you were going to be standing horses on occasions for more than you're comfortable with, I think was the end result. And it forced you to, you know, my books that suddenly went from holding 3,000 a race on a Sydney Saturday race to probably holding, you know, 20,000 a race. And, um, you know, and that meant that, you know, you had to be aggressive, uh, other runners. And, and um, you know, over the period, there probably wasn't, you know, Tom beat me, I think, over a period of time, but obviously it meant that I could. It uh, wasn't so much the beating of me; it meant that I could lay other horses to other people, and um, and use Tom's intelligence to uh, make sure that you know, those weren't really bad results for me. What he backed, uh, and obviously he had positions which you would assume, you know, you knew when Tom bet late that it was a liability bet back probably, and you probably stood those for a little bit more than the early bets he had. And in the end, you know, I was in a position where, you know, when in you know, the old bookmaking expression, when Jackie lobbed down the outside, occasionally, you, you know, you had fat results.
0: And did they sustain you, those big days or those big races or big weeks? Yeah, the big
1: uh, day, the big days sustained us. I mean, obviously, your Wednesday meetings became, you know, I was betting time a lot smaller. You know, it might have been to win 10,000 on, on a Wednesday. Um, I was servicing them all sorts of provincial meetings, and and I suppose that those meetings were smaller again. But it gave me a foundation in my in my book. I mean, I knew with twenty minutes to go you know that I had X dollars out of the favorite, and therefore I can start chasing a few of the others. And I think because the track had control of the of the actual call, it meant that you know you you sort of felt that if it was getting out too far, you could back it back. Um, you know, I had a core of bookmakers who were happy to share the action. Uh, they but they wanted me to be the wholesaler. In other words, I mean, you take the risk with Tom, you deal with Tom, you do the settling, you do all that. But I'm happy to bet you to win five thousand to top luck like, all these horses. So I was sort of in a position where I could trade and do what I wanted to do, and um, and put myself into a position which I was generally fairly comfortable with.
0: Have you ever felt comfortable doing this, or are there was there a, a year or a week or a moment throughout your career where you went from Running around, you know, like crazy, trying to get everything done week to week, year to year to I'm solidified. I can do this. This is my, you know, full term, full time, long term business now.
1: Yeah, I think well, during the Tom era, I got, you know, I had, a, I had a I had a bit of a good run at one stage and you build up your bank and you get to a stage where you feel, yeah, I'm, I'm in control of this now. Um, I had a good relationship, which was important with the other rails bookmakers in Sydney who were happy to know that i 'm you know i wasn 't hiding where the bets were from. they knew there was tough business um I had other people betting large bets with me top luck and i obviously, obviously I was happy to share the pie and and you know in the end, you know I think the relationship I had with the other bookmakers on track where I was happy to lay it at the price I laid it at i wasn 't trying to you know knock them off or shark them or anything. And I think that that, you know, telling people the truth, in in my opinion, when you're, you know, other bookmakers who you're asking to share liabilities with you, has always, but worked very well for me.
0: Tell me about, you talked about Winnie Park, 50 plus bookies there, and then obviously through the early 2000, I, I think it was still sort of, you know, rolling along pretty well in terms of on track, at least before the iPhone and before, you yep. know, more, more corporates came along and things like that, through that period, was that looking back now some of the the best days the best bookmaking calendar years and things like that and then things were still going great before we get towards iPhones corporate bookmakers apps online business
1: yeah I think in terms of the track the track business that was certainly the highlights I mean you know when I say there was 55 bookmakers at Wentworth Park I have had a, people firsthand told me that they went out to Wentworth Park or race one on a Saturday night and they were asked to put uh, you know, fifty thousand on a seven to four chance for two dollars seventy-five chance, and it, they started taking two dollars seventy and five. And by the time it jumped, it was still two seventy-five. They got the whole lot on, and you know that's how big the ring holes were. And it wasn't uncommon, you know, for I observed you know, Ray Hopkins, who I think was probably one of the biggest, most fearless bookmakers. Who was at the tail end of his career when I was observing him, but you know they were standing dogs for 10,000 in 1980, uh, you know it was the standard liability.
0: Do you have fond memories of some of those days? You talked about Kerry Packer before and some of those numbers, which are obviously outrageous compared to to these modern day numbers you hear about and people talk about. Even like Singo and, and Belle De Jour and in the Slipper and those type of things are still.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean like the, the Bel De Jour story with Cole Tidy. I mean he was, you know, a bookmaker since died, but Cole, you know, bet him to win a million dollars in God only knows. You know, I guess it's twenty years ago. Bel De Jour won. Well, you know, like it's a big bet. Think, yeah. Yeah, no, like it's a big bet that you like. You know, in today's terms, it's probably to win three or four million, isn't it? You know, like wow. And Cole accepted the bet and. You know, he was happy to take it. Well, you know, in today's terms, obviously as a punter, A, you'd never get it on, and B, uh, you know, the ring holes aren't big enough to sustain that sort of bet anymore.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about, you've mentioned a couple of times, playing the person, which seems like a, a very sensible strategy and approach, and at least in this day and age, far more people are talking about it. Have you seen that morph over the years from being a, a way that you managed your book previously to today where it's it's far more common and maybe more extreme?
1: Well, I think the whole corporate bookmaking model have not been disrespectful. I mean, they've done a wonderful job in terms of innovation and, you know, since they came to Australia. But the whole corporate model is play the person. I mean, if you're not an 8% losing customer, we minimise our exposure to you and we try to discourage you as much as possible from having a bet with us. Uh, we will bet you the minimum bet limits. And if you're Freddy that loses at 14%, well, you can have whatever you like. If you want to have 10000 on a $15 chance, we'll take your bet. Um, you know, they're wonderful, you know, and if you've got a big enough tank, a big enough bank behind you, as these corporate bookmakers do, then that's wonderful business to write. And uh, that's their model. That had never been the track model because under the rules on the racetrack where we cut our teeth, then... You had minimum bets which were far larger, and you had to bet the professionals. You didn't have a choice. So therefore, they were, you know, you had to duck and dive as best you could. But, you know, your liability, and I'm talking about in 1980, your liability was $5,000 to bet punters to win $5,000 in 1980 in, in the Sydney Rails r- Ring. You know, to, you know, if you look at today, uh, 40 years later, it's still $5,000. Um, and the minimum bet laws for corporates is $2,000. So that's not being disrespectful to the corporates. It's, it's great business for them and, and you, you can't knock them. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful business model. Play the person will certainly increase your yield.
0: You were either in the, the top, at the top or within the top couple when it came to hold on, on Sydney or New South Wales Racing. Was that what you were aiming to do or was that just a, a by-product of how you went about your business and...
1: Oh, I, I think deep down, I'm, I think deep down, Jake, I had an ambition that I wanted to be, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to be the biggest bookmaker in Sydney. Uh, I never ever thought I'd achieve that goal, but you know, I, I feel that over the last ten years, you know, it hasn't always been a great position to hold because most of the people that held the position in the last twenty-five years haven't have you know, given it away so i'm- i suppose i'm I'm proud in a way that I've been a survivor I haven't made you know exorbitant amounts of money out of it, but I've made enough to support my family and to earn a good living and to do something I love doing, which is being part of you know the racetrack crowd
0: yeah, tell me a little bit about that because a lot of people talk about the the camaraderie the the networking or or even just the friendship that comes with with doing this day in and day out. There's long hours long drives and and some ups and downs. Is that something that you cherish and you look back on? Finally? Yeah,
1: I, I cherish my friendship with you know with all the leading punters and all the leading bookmakers that you know you spend uh, you know in in many cases twenty years of your life, three days a week next to each other, trying to cut out a living, using your different styles and methods. And you know, I'd say oh, we we all have a good relationship in the Sydney rails Sydney rails area, or even the outer ring bookies with each other. We try to help each other as best we can. Um, you know, I don't think that we you know, we, we we're always honest with each other and, and yeah, it's it's a great camaraderie and even with the leading putters. I mean you know, Sean and Kingsley Bartholomew or Steve Fletcher, um, you know, they're good people. I mean they they're trying to win and they do they do win. Um but, you know, we have a good relationship with them.
0: So what has the last twelve months meant for not only your business but those around you when it comes to obviously COVID and the impact of in person anything? Tell us a bit about that shock to to how that business has changed for you.
1: Well, Jake, I I suppose in my role with the New South Wales Bookmakers Cooperative, we've had a project which we've been working on for the last five years. Um, Bookmakers were tied to an operating system which wasn't internet compatible, had no chance of that ever happening, where we'd be able to have an app or have a website or anything else. We were basically tied to the track using a system that was 30 years old, based and um, as the New South Wales Bookmakers Cooperative, we started a project where we wanted to build, try and with a, with a company build a website-based system we could also use at the racetrack. And um, touch wood, we finished that 18 months ago. And, you know, I've been one of the pioneers on that. That's where my track prices are, you know, basically displayed to the world. And punters can bet with me when they're not on the racetrack into my track system um And that's been a, you know, that's been a lifeblood for me over the last 12 months. Ninety-eight percent of my business has been through that app.
0: Are you optimistic that that transfer from track to online can be successful, you know, across the board for the large group of, of bookies that have been at tracks over the years?
1: I think it, it's a bit like, tech you know, I suppose, you know, I'll simplify it. I suppose one part of it is. Instead of people ringing on their telephone anymore, you know, that anyone less than 50 years of age, they won't do that anymore. They all want to do it via their tele- via their iPhone app. And so part of it was that to keep, even to keep the existing customers we had, uh, we had to offer them a system where they could bet via their phone without ringing up. They wanted to do it online via their, their, their handheld phone. Now, that was important. Um, I also feel that as time's gone on and that's corporate bookmaking become more about play the man, then the, the prices haven't become as sharp that are available to the punter off track. Uh, you know, in the Sydney Metropolitan Saturday ring still, when we were operating, you know, the top prices were close to 100% every race. If you shopped at the top odds, you got 100%. Now, that doesn't happen in the corporate landscape as much and, and uh, because they don't have to. I mean, they've got a core of customers but you know, if you look at a sports bet tab, Ladbroke's, their punters, they offer the right punters, the top prices, and the, the other punters have got to scramble to get on. And that tends to be the prices only really become competitive late in betting in the last few minutes. Uh, and so the, I felt there was a place where for track bookies, because you know you have good liabilities available 30 minutes from the start, uh, whereas the corporates tend to get down to their 118% five minutes from the jump.
0: Let's talk about the punters for a moment, because you've obviously dealt with a myriad over the years. Do you feel like they're getting any better compared to the earlier days, whether it's from you know the Greyhound days through to, to, to racing, or is it that people just come and go and ebbs and flows, and and overall it's uh, much the same?
1: Oh, I think the core of you know the the I the, you know and I'm not disrespectful to anyone. I think Doctor Nick, when he was in full flight two or three years ago, was. You know, was winning the greatest you know on, re, on return, return on investment of any punter I've ever tried to play, and didn't you know? Doctor Nick was betting on all states, all meetings, uh, and was far too good for the bookmakers in terms of the fixed odds prices. So I'd say Doctor Nick would be the best I've ever seen, and certainly better. You know, now he is not betting in the ring. Where as a bookmaker, we're better for not having his business. Um, I think, you know, your other you know, super pros like Sean and Kingsley, Bartholomew, are, you know, they definitely win year on year. Um, but I think they're a lower margin re- return against the bookmaker. You know, they might win 2 or 3% off you over a year, up to 10%. I think if you look at a corporate-type situation where they bet at 9 in the morning, they probably win more off you because, obviously, the prices are not as accurate. Um, and, you know, I think that the, you know they've been long-term winners and there are other myriad of people that are that are very hard to beat um but yeah i think the dr nick took it to a new level in my experience of bookmaking
0: do you think we're missing out where the punters at the track or even just on the phone or interaction wise the bookmaker punter relationship if you want to call it that is is no longer there and that might lose some people from the industry because i do think that's one thing when you go to apps only or you go to online only the 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 interaction part of it is is missing a little bit, and we don't have that um, that combativeness the friendly combativeness of a bookmaker and punter anymore and I feel like there's a bit of a void there. Do you feel the same way or are you have well, I, with-
1: I do Jake I think I think you're hundred percent right I mean you know I you know if you look at today's terms, I mean yes, I met all those leading pro punters when they were at the track you know twenty years ago now they don't come to the track very often and you don't meet them socially, so I suppose. Yes, that camaraderie is not, not going to be there. And, you know, the new new online punter, well, you're not really sure who you're playing. could be anybody. Um, but, you know, you obviously profile their bets and, and do your best to try and uh, win off their business. But, yes, yeah, so I think that camaraderie being lost is a, is a big problem.
0: Do you ever feel like you wanted to jump over the other side and, and start betting at all? Or are you always very, very happy on the stand and holding the bag? No,
1: I'm, I'm happy being the bookmaker because, you know, in all honesty, I'm not, I'm not a smart enough form student to be a winning punter, I don't think, or the temperament. Uh, you know, I think there's a temperament involved in pro punting and, you know, even the best pro punters or pro bookmakers, you go through runs and I felt I was more able to control my position's uh, in a bookmaking sense rather than a punting sense
0: yeah it makes sense so when new clerks come along and want to work for Dave what do you tell yep. them or how do you help them learn or what are some of the things that you like to pass along that you know you learnt throughout your decades of experience
1: well I you know I always say you know you, you treat people as lo- as you'd like to be treated as in you know the way we speak to people and deal with people you, you always go out of your way to be respectful and and obviously, you know, I try to. You know, I've come to understand that it, you know, it basically comes to the point where, you know, were you happy to write the bet, or did you think that the odds were in your favour when you wrote the bet? If that's the case, then the outcome doesn't really matter. I mean, it's it's it, you know, you have to make decisions where all the time in in, in on face-to-face bookmaking, and you just got to try and make sure that you you're right more often than you're
0: wrong. Do you think there's a a pipeline of of younger people coming through that want to get involved in bookmaking, that want to be doing things similar to to you, you and your colleagues have been doing all these years, or is it somewhat of a void there? Oh, I think
1: there's probably a void, Jake. I mean, we've had since we've been able to go online. I think we've had a number of younger people apply to become bookmakers and probably more they want to book make in the online space which which yes makes sense because obviously there's a the worlds your market online whereas you know you attract crowds in front of you due to COVID and even before that due to lack of interest probably in people being willing to travel to the race meetings now means that you you know you need to do the online business and the future obviously for most of us is going to be in the online space
0: yeah no I, I remember watching a uh, program. I think Matt Welsh put it together on racing.com where he was talking to some pretty important people in, in racing and betting uh, in Australia more recently. And I wanted to get your thoughts. We've obviously had the recent change in Victoria with the uh, point of consumption. We've seen changes throughout the years across the industry in different states and and obviously through uh, racing bodies, for example. Tell me about that and how that's impacted you and, and some of the, the good things that have come out, come out of that, if any, uh, and a lot of the bad things that might've had a, a negative impact on you trying to run a business for the long term?
1: Well, Jake, I think you know race fields and all those things were initially good, and, and you know we, we understood that racing needed to be funded and that bookmakers needed to contribute to that. Um, my opinion, however, now is we're at the tipping point where where the taxes are, are basically too are getting to the point of being too high, and and why that I mean if you bet on Victorian racing and you're a over five million hole bookmaker. Then you're on a situation where you, they tax you on on whether you win or lose per meeting rather than per month or per year. Uh, you know you're you know on Melbourne Cup day it's either 30% of gross profit or 3% turnover tax plus your, your your point of consumption tax plus your other expenses. So you know Victorian Racing's in a situation where you know most of the, your you know, your big bookmakers have got to make five percent. To pay the taxes, and then they've got a tack on their marketing and other expenses. So they're probably up to ten percent now in Victorian racing. If you're not, lo- if you haven't got a punter that loses ten percent on turnover, then you don't want them, or you can't make any money out of them. And yet, you look at if you if the same bookmaker writes a bet on sport, they're probably one one and a half percent. If they write a bet on overseas sports, it's zero. So we are they going to promote? And racing's in a situation where, yes, it will, up till now most Australians love to have a bet on racing, but if the margins become too big and you lose your money too quick, then you lose interest in, in gambling on those things. And and I think that's where racing needs to understand is, as you you know, if you take as you put the tax up, the bookmaker increases the margin, and punters lose their money quicker. Um, you know, and I think that's racing needs to understand its place it's it's one of many things people can bet on
0: certainly and it's obviously rapidly changing or has changed over the last certainly the last 10 to 12 years especially um and I, I hope that you know people like yourself that have been there for many many years and, and every day uh will be listened to and they'll be able to see because i think the general consensus has always been well bookies make plenty of money they'll be fine um you know let's not worry about them too much and a percent here a percent there or you know, an increase in turnover tax here and and so on doesn't always necessarily mean that it's viable longer term.
1: Yeah, well, Jake, there's not one. Can you tell me one other other industry where you get taxed higher as you turn over more? Uh, You know, I thought the idea of the game was to encourage (laughs) people to to grow their turnover on racing, you know, and Coles and Woolworths buy get cheaper deals off their just suppliers than than the local corner store well in racing it goes the other way and i would have thought that you know what racing needs to do is to be looking to partner up with bookmakers who are going to grow the pie
0: yep certainly and i wanted to just ask why do you why do you do it now why do you continue to do it why do you put all this time and effort and energy into this business in this industry for so many years is it Do you like the the risk part of it, the risking money element as a bookmaker, or is it the process? Is it the grind of meeting after meeting, race after race? Or do you know why you have done it for so long and will continue to do it?
1: I think, Jake, it's the challenge. I mean, you know, yes, I I get a bit tired of driving new provincial meetings and that, but on on your big Saturday meetings, it's the challenge of making a book. It's a challenge of saying, I've played all these people and I'll finish with a prize at the end of the day. Uh, you know, you take pride in making your books, and 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 I think that's that's what keeps you going as a bookmaker.
0: Do you have any different metrics for success? Because obviously, by almost any measure, people will be able to say Dave has been a a very successful bookmaker and what you've been able to achieve. But is it money in the bank at the end of the day? Is it? Do you look back over the the year or the decades and think there are other ways to value what you've been able to do with your time and and all the people you've met along oh, the way. Oh, I
1: think Jake. I mean, I hope that from other bookmakers' point of view, I think we just need to you know we need to adapt to the time. You know, I mean, in the 1950s, there was certain you know technology and other things were different, and people got to bet on telephones, and then you know, we've moved on to betting online. and And my hope is that there are you know why I'm still in the game is I think that the actual environment of the on-track situation, on the rules we ran by on track. There's still a place for that that for your punter that loses from zero to ten percent, or even wins. uh, That you know that that you know a bookmaker can can play in that space of the small number of a niche market for bookies who who want to actually make a book and they don't really care who backs the favourite. They just need to lay it and and uh, you know that sort of make your book type situation. uh, There may well still be a place for that for a small number of bookmakers, and I think that's that's why I continue to do what I do, and I hope that when I'm gone that there is a, a few more bookies that will come online who want to play that sort of a game, you know, and and I suppose the closest to that in in what I look at is your top sport type model who are still online but carry with a few of the values that the, your track bookies have, you know, used to have, you know, they, they give people a reasonable bet, they, they, they give everyone a bet, and they, if you win, well, good luck to you.
0: No, absolutely. And before I let you get out of here, I got a couple of quick hits for you. A couple of quick questions. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. The first is: yep. Do you recall the biggest bet that you've taken, or the biggest uh, liability you've had on a single race or a single horse?
1: Well, the biggest, the biggest bet I, uh, two biggest bets I ever took were on the one horse. It was it's a done deal when it was at its prime. I think it. Was in Sydney and the Sydney Autumn Carnival and then I think the first bet was you know, Tom had towards Tom Waterhouse again. He had three hundred and fifty thousand top fluck, which at that time was a dollar thirty-five, um, and that took a lot of handling. And I think I had a wipeout on the race in the end. It won, and then the following started was a dollar thirty, and I think Tom had <laughs> two hundred and fifty thousand on it. Managed to get beaten, thank goodness, wow. and uh, we recouped our losses and got our little nose in front. So, you know that i could never do that style of betting today because there's a there's not enough bookies to share the risk with and and b you know it would be uh, yeah it would be uh, hard to do today
0: do you have a favorite horse or dog whether you like watching them whether they want you some money or for any other reason
1: well, I have a few favourites that we don't like. I suppose Winks and and uh, Black Caviar <laughs> yeah. in the last period of time have been disasters for us all, and we could buy a new house with what we have lost on it over the time. Um, if you know, I they got rolled
0: once each. It would have been completely fine. For
1: fantastic. You. <laughs> you know, I think the, my favourite horse, of, you know, when I was young, was Kingston Town. I think I, you know the the fact that a horse could win from twelve hundred to three thirty two hundred, and you know, probably should have won the Melbourne Cup in the year it was there uh you know i think kingston town was certainly and raced all comers but you know it it took on everybody uh you know kingston town was certainly one of my favorite horses
0: so if you got one last racetrack to visit with your picnic rug a couple of chairs maybe a cold beverage or two and just enjoy the day without working which track would that be
1: Yes, that's a you know. I suppose you know my you know favourite winning track would be a race race track called Bong Bong. It wouldn't be for facilities, but Bong Bong's a picnic meeting in in the, near Barrow once a year, and I had great fond memories of you know working there. And and I suppose in my my favourite Sydney racetrack would certainly be would probably be Randwick. I mean I've had my biggest days at Randwick, and you know I think it's the home of racing while we love Rose Hill as well, and it's close to where I live at Parramatta, I think that, you know, the, the you know, Rambig has always been the best track for me personally.
0: Awesome. Uh, well, Dave, thank you for the time. It's been awesome and, and a lot of fun to chat. I wish you, you know, best of luck with the Bookmakers Cooperative and, and all the, the challenges you have there with the portal and everything else you got going on. And it was a great pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Jake.